is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman. And I'm Mike Simpson from the KNX Odyssey Studios in L.A. We're all hoping the pandemic's on the decline. It'll be over soon. Things look good in the U.S., though there's concern with the Delta variant. Now that we've been through this for more than a year, how did the country do? We'll look at that. And we'll look into getting back to normal and how people are handling that. What is normal now anyway? Traffic has changed, and some of the changes, well, they might be permanent. Let's begin now with examining how the U.S. has responded so far to the pandemic. Dr. Perry Halkistis is dean of the Rutgers School of Public Health. He talked to KYW's Carol McKenzie and explained what we learned from COVID-19 and if we're any more prepared for the next health emergency. When we look at the context of the epidemic over the course of the last 18 months and the potential of the United States to actually have had a really effective response we fall extremely short. Here's what we, I think we did wrong. Number one, we localized the problem instead of centralizing the problem. We put the impetus on all of the states and the localities to handle this on their own without any real effort on the part of the federal government to control things. Number two, there was a lack of urgency and a lack of a need to make change effectively and quickly. And number three would be that we quite frankly, tried to open the economy too soon. And as a result of that, we continue to see all the blips. And finally, I would say from a perspective of development of treatments and of vaccinations and of testing, we allowed the pharmaceutical companies to create these things on their own instead of, again, having the federal government really take this under control, work with one or two organizations and do this effectively. So all of those things collectively led to the cases and the deaths that we saw in the United States. The response, I will just add very quickly, on the vaccination part, is somewhat better, but still not perfect. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to what you just said about we open the economy too quickly. You know, there part of the pain and suffering of this pandemic has not just been the virus itself and people, of course, suffering and getting sick and dying, but people have suffered with the shutdown of the economy, loss of income, the loss of the ability to just pay for the basics, food, shelter, clothing. So how do you reconcile that? And when you say we opened up too soon, people who have suffered economically might say we didn't open up soon enough. Right. So I think always so the metaphor I use for understanding all of this is the following. So when we think about, let's say, a marathon runner, A marathon runner who runs 26.2 miles is really a great athlete, injures themselves, right? And then is off the track for a very long time. Let's say for a two-month period or three-month period. That person is not going to go back the minute that they're healed to running 26.2 miles. They're going to open slowly. So when I say I completely agree that the economic, emotional, psychological suffering sits at an equal level with the physical suffering we've experienced in our country. However, what I think the challenge was last summer and what the the challenge was last spring was that people just wanted to rip the Band-Aid off, open all the shops, take our masks off. And as a result of that, we didn't transition in a methodical way. The states that did it, and I quite frankly think New Jersey is one of the leaders in this regard, had a better response ultimately than other states throughout the country. But 
the states that just ripped the Band-Aid off had continuate like Florida had a continuation of the pandemic, rising cases, rising deaths. And as a result, the perpetuation of the disease. If we had just stayed a little more silent and contained and more methodical throughout the country consistently with New Jersey as a model, we may have been in a better place at a sooner time. So, Dr. Halkidis, a big problem right now is vaccine hesitancy. And the people who are hesitant have various reasons as to why they are. So is there a way that we can talk to each other, that we can talk to our friends and family about the vaccine without creating conflict, without pushing them away? What's your advice? How do we talk to each other without getting confrontational? Well, first of all, so I'll, I'll convey a story, Carol. I had a, somebody from uh, TaskRabbit, which is like, you know, these companies where people come and fix things in your house, right? So I needed, like, I needed a faucet installed because, you know, I can't, I can't do that. I've tried, but it failed. <laughs> um, so he came over and we had our masks on and he was telling me about himself and his wife and their children and how they were just waiting and seeing. And my response to him was, look, I think that you should trust the vaccines. I was just, I conveyed information to him. We've been doing vaccinations for 70 years. Yes, there were mistakes at the beginning. Of course, there's going to be one or two cases where people are not going to have a good reaction. But if you want to have a quote unquote normal life, you need to get vaccinated. Because I said to him, I have a sense that in the future, there's going to be certain environments that we're not going to be able to navigate unless we have proof of vaccination. And so just do it for that reason. But the next time I saw him, he had been fully vaccinated. And I spoke to him as an equal. So I think that's one thing to do. The second thing is I love all of these innovative ways of rewarding people for being vaccinated. I love the beer. I love the wine. I love the lottery. I love the scholarships. These are brilliant, brilliant approaches because we know consistently from research that when you reward people, when you give them incentives, it increases the likelihood of their behavior. So keep doing that amazing sort of cool out of the box thinking, right? then we will get more people vaccinated. And again, Carol, I think there's like 20% of the public that will never be vaccinated no matter what we do. They're just stuck. But there's that 30% who I think are malleable, and that's where our efforts should go. Okay. Convince those people to try to get in and get a shot. One of the kind of the core debates that we've faced in this country since the beginning of the pandemic is the public health versus privacy versus our individual rights that we take very seriously in this country. We haven't balanced that well. What is the answer to that? My answer to that is that if you're part of a civil society, you give up some of your rights, right? So this is like, you know, basic, you know, conceptions of how uh, societies work. So I want police. I want a government. I want like my streets clean. I give up a certain amount of my rights. I pay taxes for that too. So I think that is the philosophy I start with, which is that if you are part of a civil society, being part of a civil society means that you have to care for yourself, not more than you care for the others in your life. The second thing I would say is that there's a pretty clear body of work out there that shows that when we tap into people's empathy and their altruism, they're more likely to engage in health behaviors. We know this from the HIV world. We know it from the cancer world. There's a lot of literature out there. What I've been saying all along to my friends and my family is, my brother has progressive MS. Mm. Even if I was resistant to getting the vaccine, I would do it for him. So I want every single person to think about the most vulnerable person in their lives and get the vaccination for that person in that person's honor. 
That's what I think we have to do better. I want to look forward now because we have been warned that this is not going to be the last pandemic we face. Are we more prepared for the next one? Did we learn anything here that do you think we're going to make meaningful change so that we respond better to the next one? You know, Carol, that's such a great question. And I wrote an essay about six months ago that tried to tie what HIV and because that was the last pandemic we really faced, like a really big pandemic we faced to SARS-CoV-2. I I do think I don't want to be an optimist and I tend to be an optimist. We've learned in the last 40 years. We have. The fact that we actually start to develop vaccines and thinking about the viruses when the first SARS happened in the early 2000s put us in a really good position here. So that's all really good. Here's where I think we went wrong. We have depleted the public health workforce consistently for the last decade. There's no money in the public health anymore, right? And yet here came a pandemic and we were expecting public health to solve the problems. Well, public health doesn't have the money to solve the problems. We need to build that infrastructure up again in a way where it's robust and ready and have a playbook in hand. I think if we are able to do that, we will be in better shape. The fears, the emotions, the anxieties, the reactions, you know, the don't sit on the toilet seat in 1985 became the don't bring the grocery bags in your house in 2000, right? That's always going to happen because human beings are human beings. But if we can build a public health infrastructure and, and develop a public health workforce that actually is able to speak to people the way we spoke about before in a real way and convey scientific information and looks like the people they're trying to convey the information to, we'll be in much, much, much better shape next time around. Dr. Halkidis, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Carol. Thank you. Lots of people who were anxious during quarantine are ready to go back out and rejoin the world, but not everyone is as comfortable. It's going to take some time before we get completely back to normal, whatever normal is now. Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, cognitive behavior therapist, uh, she talked to Carol about the mental health fallout that's coming after the pandemic and tips on what she can do to make the coming months a little easier. One of the things that I see now as we as we see restrictions being lifted is that people who were anxious during quarantine, during lockdowns are actually they're ready. They're ready to go back out. They have some concerns. They have you know normal anxiety. We just experienced a collective trauma. So if we didn't have anxiety, it would be very strange. So I tell people having anxiety is healthy. It's normal. It keeps us safe. So to have that going back out is perfectly normal. I found that people who had anxiety prior to the pandemic during the quarantine, during the lockdown, during this time actually had less anxiety because there was now a valid reason to be anxious. Their anxiety actually had somewhere to fall. And now that that is ending, they're actually the ones whose anxiety is spiking. You know, I've experienced some of this weirdness of going out in public and seeing Mm -hmm. faces. And I just, I went into a store yesterday where they're not requiring masks (laughs) in the PA suburbs and says, if you're fully vaccinated, I'm like, okay, I am. So I didn't wear my mask. And I, like this other woman turned around, we looked at each other. I'm like, it's just so weird to see your face. It is, there's a strangeness about what's quote unquote normal. Yeah. And I think our definition of, quote, normal is going to have to be revisited. We haven't seen people's faces, truly, except our families, in over a year. 
now when we see people's faces and their mouths, we've associated that with danger. So now we're back out and we see people's faces and we're associating it with that weirdness that you said, that kind of danger and this question of should I approach them or not? So we've deprived ourselves from human connection, from interacting with people. And now this thing that was so positive is now viewed as scary. So it's a very weird transition and it's going to take a long time for people to settle back into that. When you say a long time, what does that mean? And how do we talk ourselves through this, I guess? Like, how do we get ourselves through this anxious period so we can kind of feel more comfortable and more relaxed when we're out? So one of the things that makes our anxiety lower is actually doing the thing that we're fearful of in baby steps. So I have told my patients this, when you go back out into quote, normalcy, whatever that is going to look like, it's going to be different for every single person. It's going to depend on your experiences during this time. Did you lose someone you love? Were you completely, no one in your family had COVID, somebody had COVID, you gave it to them, they have long-term symptoms. So I think that it's going to depend on personal experiences. It's going to depend on people's coping strategies that they had prior to this. And everybody's going to respond to this differently. As far as what to do and how people handle this, the best thing to do is to move towards the thing that you're fearful of, move towards the thing that you're anxious of in very small steps. So I tell people when you go back out, if you used to go to the gym five days a week, start one day a week you know, and then gradually work your way up to two and to three and do it small because this is going to be awkward for everybody. And again, that's, that's normal. Go into this knowing it's going to be awkward rather than expecting it not to be. So this is going to be awkward for everybody. We're all going to have to work our way through it. But at what point should you get professional help? Like if you're, you know, we're all going to have trouble, but at what point does, do you think like, okay, somebody needs to seek a professional to help them work through this? That's a great question. It's going to depend on the degree to which it interferes with that person's day-to-day functioning. Let's say prior to this, they were very social. They were outgoing. They had no difficulty going into their office. If they find that their avoidance of those situations as they, as they become safe is interfering with their day-to-day normal functioning that existed, let's say pre-pandemic, and they're not sleeping well, or their appetite is affected, they're isolating themselves, they're having panic attacks, or they're starting to feel kind of helpless, like what's the point in this, that's when I would start to seek help. And a good anchor point, like I said, is if you notice that you're really not able to function in your day to day, that it's impacting your, your performance at work, it's impacting your family relationships, your friends and things like that. What are the things you mentioned earlier, collective trauma, you know, some people have had loved ones die. Some people have seen, you know, have had more than one person they love die or get sick. Can you talk a little bit about that kind of that lingering collective trauma that we're in and how we deal with it? Yeah. So collective trauma, meaning there's not one person in the world who has not experienced COVID. Whatever that looks like is different for everyone, but everybody experienced this. And we really haven't had that. You know, the the only thing that I can compare 
and it's still so different would be 9-11. But the difference between a trauma like that and a trauma like this is that with 9-11, there was a distinct beginning, middle, and an end point to the event. It had lingering effects, obviously, but it was an isolated event. With COVID, there's no real beginning, middle, and end. And there's so much uncertainty. There's so many different opinions and views. And the reason why I think this is going to linger for a lot longer is because of that uncertainty. And people are not good. None of us are good with managing uncertainty because as human beings, we like to be able to predict what comes next. And with this, we just don't know. So then how do we help each other Mm -hmm. get through this? I think we have to be patient with one another kind to one another, understand that everybody is going to manage this differently. You may have a friend or family member that was raring to go back out into public six months ago. You may have people that are refusing to get vaccinated. You may have people who are gradually going to reenter. And I think that assuming that everything you're doing is safe and the people you're around are safe, we have to be patient with everybody's level of familiarity, comfortability, re-entering into this. That's the first thing. The second thing is to remind yourself that everything you're feeling right now is completely normal. The anxiety you have, the uncertainty you have, the sadness you have, the guilt that you may have. There's a lot of guilt with this. There's a lot of remorse. There's grieving. There's, you know, like I said, anxiety. And we have to be willing to feel those emotions because they are all appropriate. And the more you allow yourself to to feel them and know that they're okay and that they're not scary, the sooner you'll be more comfortable being uncomfortable. Dr. Zuckerman, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Coming up after this short break, those traffic changes you've noticed could be here to stay. Pandemic has changed traffic patterns. Remember early on when the roads, highways, and freeways were almost empty? If you still had to go to work, your commute was much, much smoother. Now it's bumpy again. More people on the roads, but it's not all bad. Morning commuters remain on the less stressful side, at least uh, mostly. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talked to Joe Sweeterman, professor of public services and director of the Chaddock Institute at DePaul University, about if the changes are going to stick. New data coming out is really uh, an eye-opener. It's showing uh, especially how that early morning rush hour between 6 and 8 o'clock is just down dramatically. In fact, you know, shocking levels in places like San Francisco where it's down 30%, less so in rural areas. Uh, and that traffic is moving to other parts of the day. But I think what's, uh, what's evident here is that morning rush isn't coming back, even with some offices reopening as we thought. And, uh, and that traffic is moving elsewhere and people were feeling it, uh, who, uh, who've shifted to midday, say. Oh, yeah. We have people, in fact, right about this time where they would normally be heading home or heading out to lunch or something, and they're saying, where's all this traffic coming from? Yeah, that's right. And we know there's been research showing when people drive less for work, they drive more elsewhere just because of that impulse to to get out and roam and so forth. And uh, we've seen for some time that weekend traffic is a bit up. Now, overall, total driving is still down slightly since pre-pandemic. And I think some of that is due to the fuel prices. I mean, you just reported oil being back up to 75 and 
filling up that tank is a little more painful. Uh, but you do take away uh, work business trips that people aren't traveling, uh, road wires, sales forces, and so forth, like before. So we have less traffic, but uh, I think that evening rush is nearly back to where it was in Chicago, and the uh, congestion's back uh, that time of day. So it doesn't seem like this is, you know, we expected it to go back to what, you know, the old normal. It seems like this is the new normal, and that morning commute's never really going to be what it was. That's right. I do think we'll have a, a blip after Labor Day when uh, a lot of offices reopen, but but there's more evidence that the flex schedule is becoming uh, in hot demand for people, and uh, uh, where they may take those early morning meetings from home. And it really is affecting lots of things. I mean, Uber drivers we've heard are really frustrated because they like that morning shift when they're the crazies aren't out, so to speak. Uh, a lot of commuting traffic. That's uh, uh, affected their market. Of course, transit, we're scratching our head thinking what comes next for uh, commuter rail with uh, less need for morning rush hour schedule. So this will ripple through uh, the way we live. Yeah, especially because people really liked a lot of those express metro trains, and maybe they won't need as many of them. Thank you so much, Joe Schwederman. The U.S. Surgeon General could ease your worries about the Delta variant if you've got the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Dr. Vivek Murthy told CNBC that data shows the AstraZeneca shot, a cousin of the J&J vaccine, is highly effective against the Delta variant. He says that's a reason to be hopeful about the J&J vaccine and adds that it's proven to be quite effective against preventing hospitalizations and deaths with all the variants that we've seen to date. Murthy's comments come as other companies, such as Moderna, announced that their vaccine is effective against all variants of COVID-19, including the Delta variant. This is an Odyssey original. Find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.